You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Well, APT41 is a longstanding group that's been around since, uh, according to, to re- the recent diamond, 2011. We at, at Samantha have actually been tracking them since 2012. So shortly after they popped up, we kind of they got on our radar. That's John DiMaggio from Symantec's Threat Hunter team. The research we're discussing today is titled APT41, Indictments Put Chinese Espionage Group in the Spotlight. Hey everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at Splunk.com slash resilience. I guess what their biggest uh, claim to fame or what they were known for is they're one of the early adapters that really got into leveraging uh, attacks for for what they call supply chain attacks, leveraging uh, victims for attacks for a later stage of a, of a bigger objective. Um, so they would get into all these other companies uh, in order to use them to sort of traverse by those trusted relationships into what their actual target was. And, you know, they were one of the groups that, that, that sort of created that and, and started doing that. You know, we really didn't see much of that. And now it's much more common, but these guys were doing it, you know, starting back in 2012. But it's also one of the most confusing groups because, you know, mo- most of the uh, attackers that you see while in the espionage game, especially if they're a group that, that is involved in espionage, you generally don't see cyber crime. So that really confused a lot of researchers. And, and so the reason I'm sort of throwing that in is, 
is, you know, when we look and we track activity and you, you try to identify motivation, it really throws you off when you start to see very different types of, of attacks where you're looking for a complete different end result. Um, you don't usually see financial gain uh, involved with an operation that uh, is trying to steal information that's clearly going to be used for uh, political or military purposes. So, so, th- so this group really is interesting because of that. So you you have all these pockets of activity. You'd see things, you know, involving clearly very uh, custom developed, uh, sophisticated espionage malware that steals information, and then you see other attacks where they're leveraging that and uh, and using it for for financial gain. And, and really, you know, one of the, the 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 biggest differences, you know, in that was looking in what the times of use of when these types of attacks were doing but um we can talk about that a little bit more but uh, in detail but but yeah that we've been tracking them since 2011 and uh they have quite a, a tool set of their own uh, malware that they use for these attacks um we we assessed that they were you know a small group um they clearly had ties back to the uh, china region and they clearly had the resources to have you know custom tools uh custom malware and they appeared to be very long-term objective oriented attackers, meaning they'd have all these different phases of an attack before you could figure out what the actual uh, real true uh, objective was. Can you give us some insights uh, as a researcher? What is the process like for you and, and your colleagues for sort of connecting the dots, for determining as as time goes by, what what do you include with this group? What do you exclude? How do you how do you make that that circle smaller and smaller over time to know exactly who you're dealing with and, and likely what they're up to? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the normal process of how we apply that against uh, any sort of targeted attack is to not just look at the first attack. So usually you, you begin because of one event or one attack. Uh, but what you need to do when it comes to these sophisticated attackers is expand that pivot and identify other infrastructure, other malware, other victims, and then do a rear view mirror look to see, okay, are there other campaigns? Maybe there's a different vertical, uh, a different um, sector that's been targeting that you're not seeing, but you can learn about the tactics from that group. So you you really need to, to pivot and look back, rear view mirror, collect all that information, reanalyze everything that you have and sort of come up with uh, a, a bigger picture hypothesis of what that attacker is is doing, what is their motivation, and what is, you know, all these smaller attacks uh, lead up to. Uh, this group, however, made that very difficult. Um, and the reason I say that is is what I alluded to before. We looked at the pocket of activity. And when you have custom malware that you believe is unique to an attacker, especially um, something that you think is resourced back to a nation, uh, that attacker is, it's, you know, it, it's for those military government purposes. Therefore, you don't usually see that very sophisticated malware used for financial 
financial gain attacks. And the reason why is, you know, they spend all this time developing this malware. You don't want to take the chance that it's going to get identified and then researchers and antivirus and defenders can now write signatures to detect it. And your advanced operation that you spent all this time and money on is a major component of it is no longer usable. So that's what was so weird about this is, you know, we were seeing what was clearly espionage operations. And then shortly after, we began to see these financial gain motivated attacks. One of the things that we did, I sort of alluded to earlier, that really helped us to figure this out was uh, time time boxing the activity. So uh, taking you know longer range time periods of the activity and plotting the the hours of actual you know human on victim network time. So when a human was actually logged in doing things as part of the attack. So those high fidelity timestamps, if you will, of events, and then you plot those over time and you sort of look for what would fit in a workday? This is really relevant for nation state attacks because usually your A-game guys are are working a day shift. Um, that's just the trend that we often see. You have different teams. Usually your A-game guys will be working during the day. Um, so anyway, you look for that to try to, to come up with time zones that fit a possible workday, and then you apply that to regions of the world. Well, what we noticed when we did that is there were very distinctive patterns between, while using the same map and tools, there were very distinctive patterns between the espionage geared attacks versus the uh, cybercrime financial gain motivated attacks. And what we saw was those the the, the financial gain motivated attacks uh, against many of the video game companies that we saw were actually taking place between 10 p.m. and, and 1 a.m. Uh, in, in the same time zone that that we had you know leveraged from the uh, time zone analysis of the uh, of the espionage attacks. So by, by applying that, because we had less data for the cybercrime, so applying though the, that same time zone to, to those attacks, assuming that because the malware is so unique that the people using it must be at least have a relationship with those who are doing the espionage attack, allowed us to sort of make that assumption, okay, well, these guys are using it at night. And what's the first thing you think of as I say this? Moonlighting. So yeah, that's what that's, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, ex- like, exactly, it's which like, makes right, it so right. interesting. You know, that's yeah. like, so when, when do you ever see like espionage operators that uh, you know what i got a few hours here tonight let's go make some money guys i mean you just don't see that and that we saw that back then and that made this so interesting and um you know we did some um, collaboration with some of the analysts at uh fireeye which we we talked about this at rsa this year uh myself and some fireeye guys uh, we did a panel we actually did a use case on on this exact group and the reason we did it is we at semantic um tracked them as two different groups uh we believe that just like FireEye, they're the same individuals behind the activity. However, the actual buckets of activity, what they're doing was different. So we track it by the activity, not the people. FireEye tracks it more by the people, not the activity. So neither is wrong, but we track them very different. So that's one of the things that we discussed. Point being, though, that's what makes this so interesting is you have these, you know, operators moonlighting, using the same weapons, essentially, to come up with different outcomes for different types of attacks. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as kind of like, you know, hey, boss, you mind if I run off, you know, can I use the photocopier after hours or something? You know, that sort of thing. It's, <laughs> because well, I, I yeah. can't imagine that these guys would be would be doing this without permission. Well, so, yeah, exactly. That That's, I, I don't believe for a second that, I agree with you, you wouldn't expect them to, but I don't believe for a second that 
Uh, I'll just refer to it as their handlers since, you know, we know from the indictment that there was relationships with some of the operators with the Ministry of Security and the uh, National Security Bureau in, in Chengdu, that that was in the indictment. So we don't know that they are, that's who's behind the espionage attacks, but we know that some of the operators had working relationships with those organizations. But let's just call it the handlers behind the attacks, the ones paying for planning that, that are the benefiting from, from the attacks, whoever that is is i cannot imagine that they would be okay though with, with with these guys using their again their military grade weapons if you will in their you know the secret sauce with their with their custom malware um to steal you know something basically as dumb as video game currency you know that just seems mm. like such a way a waste of your resources because like i said the more you expose your malware to the internet to the world uh the more the, the higher likelihood it's going to be identified signature is written and now it is no longer effective. So I just don't believe that they were on board or okay with that. I truly think that they probably did this on their own to make a buck and didn't think they would get caught. Um, mm. and, and then the fact that they worked with these guys in Malaysia and they created, you know, what I'll just call a shell company, the the SEA Gamer Mall, that they, they essentially created that entity simply to sell the virtual currency that they had, you know, it, obtained in their theft campaign. So, you know, the whole thing is, you, these are all smart guys, clearly, but, I, you know, I think it's a bad day for them. Whether the indictments can touch them or not, I think it's a bad day for them in China when that indictment came out. I really don't think that, like I said, if any government entity would be okay uh, with you using that for, for your own financial purposes. And it's not like China is some poor nation that's going to benefit from financial theft attacks. You know, we see that sometimes with, uh, you know, North Korea is the best example. We don't really mm. see that with China. So it really doesn't fit their model. Do we have any insights as to what the the culture is among the elite hackers in China? And and I, I come at the question from, from this direction, which is that, you know, I have heard here in the here in the United States, you know, I've heard about um you know, people with high technical abilities uh, being referred to as, you know, rock stars or national treasures or, you know, those sorts of things. And so those people are well taken care of, uh, you know, to the point of sometimes, uh, you know, being coddled or they may have um, peculiarities in their personality that are overlooked because their technical skills are so high. Do we have any insights into that, what, what may go on uh, culturally in China? Yeah, so um, I do actually have an, an opinion based off of an experience from all the research and, and, and observing these groups for a number of years. So previously, like up to say maybe 2010, so from 2002 through like 2010, one of the one of the the really uh, useful pieces of, of research that we could do was if you had any sort of a handle or any sort sort of unique piece of uh, identifiable information and malware that you could use to find the developer. Um, it, one of the things that used to take place was guys would leave a handle in malware. So there was a malware uh, guy who, who you, in, based out of China, who used the alias uh, YYT hacker, who was just notorious for putting his handle within his malware. And, you know, that malware was even, was 
eventually was seen in in some of these groups that we track, uh, you know, in, in espionage attacks. And so the things like that allowed you to go search and identify, all right, well, this guy is, you know, has this handle and he did a paper for a technical university in China with an email address with that same handle. You know, you could piece these things together. They got, yeah. and they, bear with me here and answer your question, but they got, they, they have become much better at their uh, operational security. They, it is rare now that you get things like that that you can use to to pivot on. And the reason that that's important is because I think the government really cracked down on that and said, hey, operators, you need to have discipline or hackers, whatever word you want to use. You need to have discipline here. You, This isn't we're paying you. This is, you know, you're, you're giving away our operations. You're giving away to identify us and attribute us. You need to stop doing that. And, and I, the reason I believe that they took a stance to do that is because it, it tailored off so quickly. And it's so rare now that we get that sort of uh, open source piece that we can really go dig and find the uh, guys behind the keyboards. Um, so we do. We have to rely so much more on either mistakes in operations or things in the malware or other things that are human-based patterns of what they do when they're on their network. They've made it much more difficult. But I don't think, though, that it's something that's condoned. I do think they do treat their operators, like you said, that rock star mentality. Absolutely. The guys that I think that are good at what they do, they're probably, you know, they are probably well-paid and, and treated uh, decently in, in their home country. Um, but there's the one thing I, that I think is important to always remember, you know, human greed especially when it comes to money it's something that can get the best of anyone and i think that's really what you saw here interesting well let's dig into the indictments um yeah uh, mid-september the, the u.s department of justice uh, comes out and uh, uh charges uh, seven people including some folks with apt 41 uh with a variety of crimes here um how did this uh, how did this impact you what was your reaction to this uh, well, a reaction is uh, whenever we have an indictment come out, uh, you know, it's exciting because the indictments provide so much information and intelligence, not just on the attacks, but the people behind it. So we literally, when they come out, you know, uh, my team and I, we, we, we all sit down and read the entire, not not just the, the blog that talks about the high level stuff. We should get down and we read into the weeds because it's so interesting to take that and then compare it to our research and see what did we get right and what did we get wrong? Um, and you know, a lot of times the things that you just, you couldn't possibly know as a, as a defender, only, you know, government type intelligence agencies could figure out. Um, and, and that, you know, so these indictments really shed light on that doing that process with APT 41, uh, I'll be honest, we, we got this one pretty, it was pretty good. We had, obviously we didn't have operator names, but as far as the way we tracked it, the way we broke up the malware, the, the operations, the way we separated them um, at Semantic, we, we actually had this pretty good. Um, what I did find extremely interesting, though, was that human aspect. So, um, you know, the fact that you mentioned there are seven uh, individuals, well, there's only two of them that they specifically called out that you know, worked both the espionage and the cybercrime operations. Now, obviously, we can infer that all of them had relationships in some way with one another, but the actual indictment itself only actually calls out two that did cybercrime and espionage, which to me says, you know, the others might have been involved in, in cross operations, but these are the two that we have black and white evidence to support that claim um, since it's in, in the indictment itself. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I think that the... Uh, 
sort of, it wasn't really finger pointing, but it, you know, subtly was at some of the uh, government agencies that they mentioned in the indictment that had relationships with the operators. I thought that was very interesting. Again, that's something that unless there is a mishap in, in their operations where they make a mistake and we get to see an IP, like, like, you know, let's say forget to turn on a proxy and they originate from one of those entities, unless things like that happen, we off, we don't usually get the, uh, the, the government piece behind it. Um, so that was really interesting. Uh, the Shengdu 404 network technology piece, um, you know, we had heard about, we've heard of that uh, organization before. Um, they didn't have evidence that it was necessarily bad, but there was a lot of suspicious things that were, were around that. So that was at least on our radar. Uh, and then the SEA gamer mall that was selling this fraudulent stuff, we had not heard of that before at all. Uh, but that was based out of Malaysia. That wasn't exactly our prime area of, of research in this. But uh, adding all it had been together, like I said, I just sort of named the interesting pieces that we may not have necessarily ever known about but putting it all together you know it really tells us um you know we're, we're doing a good job in, in the way that we're tracking and doing our analysis uh you know it doesn't always like this where we get it you know all these things line up but it, it's usually pretty good but this one we, we had a real win uh, out of now do you suspect that uh the folks behind apt 41 will change some of their tactics as a result of this indictment I do believe that. So the reason I think that that's definitely going to happen is we've seen it in the past. You know, I mean, the most high level example is, you know, APT1. You know, when that happened, they burned infrastructure, they shut down operations for several months, they rebuilt. Um, you know, that was a China based group as well. Uh, you know, but it's not just even China. You see that you can use Russia for another example. Let's talk about them. Completely different nation. But, you know, when uh, like Dragonfly, the U.S. Uh, energy infrastructure attacks that uh, that took place, you know, when uh, that was one where we, we we wrote a blog on that and we put information on that and they shut down operations temporarily. They burned infrastructure. They retooled and they came back with a different style of attack. So I think despite the nation, I think that is generally what happens with espionage attackers. You know, lesser attackers don't necessarily have the resources to, you know, to stop, retool, recreate new malware, come up with new creative ideas to attack and start again once they've uh, once they've been identified. But but governments certainly do. So I think that trend will continue here. Uh, but I don't think they'll go away. I think they'll 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 slow down and we'll we'll see a gap in activity. And then they'll come back with some some new creative way to attack and to continue their operations uh, with the same end results. Our thanks to John DiMaggio from Symantec's Threat Hunter team. The research is titled APT41. Indictments put Chinese espionage group in the spotlight. We'll have a link in the show notes. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 